Greetings to you from New Life Presbyterian Church in Yorktown, Indiana. We are glad that you have joined us to worship our God this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My name is Brian Allred. I serve on the staff here at New Life. And our hope and prayer for you this morning, whether you're, you are a regular attender here at New Life or whether you've just kind of stumbled onto this video and are checking out what's going on here this morning, our hope and our prayer for you is that you will have an encounter with the living God, that you will draw near to him by faith in Jesus and that you will receive from him grace and mercy and peace and hope and strength and encouragement and blessing and life through him who is the source of all blessing and life. And this God actually invites us to, to draw near to him in worship as he calls us to worship him in his word. And so we're gonna hear him call us to worship this morning with the words of Psalm 18, verses 30 and 31. I'm going to read those words to us this morning as we hear God calling us to worship and then open us in prayer. The words of Psalm 18, 30 and 31 say, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we declare this morning that your way is indeed perfect. That your word indeed proves true. And that you are a shield for all of those who take refuge in you. And so we come before you this morning in worship to take refuge in you and to render to you our hearts in praise. Receive that praise that we bring to you now, for we bring it in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Yeah. 
Testament reading now from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13. We're going to read the first five verses. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So let's make sure we understand what's being said here in this passage. If someone performs a sign or a wonder, namely a sign that kind of pulls off this Nostradamus-like feat, He makes a predictive prophecy about some future event. And this event actually comes to pass as impressive and as persuasive as that might be. 
If that same person then suggests that we depart from the Lord and disobey his voice and turn away from him, we are not to listen to him. In fact, that person is to be put to death as a teacher of rebellion against God. You know, we can easily be dazzled by the spectacular and the extraordinary, but let's remember that the evil one can perform things that are extraordinary and spectacular too. And so the truth is not confirmed by its being accompanied with things that are extraordinary or spectacular, but rather we confirm the truth by its conformity to what God has already said and by its call to remain faithful to God and to what he has said in his word to be faithful to that because that's ultimately what God wants from us. He wants us to be faithful to him for our allegiance to belong ultimately to him, to be devoted and loyal to him, to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul as this passage says. And we show that by listening to his voice, by obeying his word, regardless of how alluring or attractive other voices and other messages might be. We are to obey him and listen to him and him alone. And yet we need to confess that there's something deficient in our allegiance and our loyalty and our faithfulness and our devotion because we at times give heed to other voices, voices around us, messages around us, voices and messages that are coming within us that lead us to depart from God and disobey his word when we sin. And this simply serves to show us that we need divine grace, mercy, and forgiveness. It reminds us of our need for a savior. And yet, it's this divine grace, mercy, and forgiveness that God promises to extend to us in the savior that he's provided. And that's our Lord and savior, Jesus. And so because we have this savior, we can go before the Lord now confessing our sins and seeking his grace and mercy and forgiveness. So wherever you happen to be right now, take a few moments in silence now to confess your sins, to plead the blood of Jesus on your behalf and find forgiveness grace and mercy from the Lord. Take a few moments to confess your sins now. It is good and right for us to confess our sins and our lack of devotion and allegiance and faithfulness and devotion to the Lord. But our right standing before God will never come from us trying to make up for those deficiencies ourselves in our own righteousness. Rather, our right standing before God will come from another confession, not a confession of sin, but a confession of faith and trust in Jesus and a trust that he is the one who covers our deficiencies and our unfaithfulness by his righteousness, and a trust and a belief that all we need for life and salvation is found in Jesus. Our assurance of pardon this morning from Romans chapter 10, verse nine says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if that's you, if you are confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you are looking to him as the king who is worthy of your allegiance and your faithfulness and your devotion. And you're also believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, a death that he died to atone for your sins, to pay the price for your sins on the cross. And you're believing that he is raised from the dead as evidence that his sacrifice on your behalf was received by the Father. If you're confessing this and believing this in your heart, then you can be fully assured this morning, friends, that your sins are pardoned, that you are forgiven, that you're not condemned, but rather you stand before the Father in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, his perfect righteousness that is credited to you by faith. That is the good news of the gospel. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And so the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus is a wonderful friend for the righteous. It's that Jesus is a wonderful friend for sinners who put their faith and their trust in him alone for salvation 
and for eternal life and for forgiveness. And so let's respond to this good news by singing. is the time in our service where we would ordinarily continue our worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings, but since we're not together, we can't do that, but I want to encourage you to continue to give to the church and the work of the kingdom here. Uh, there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can uh, send a mail or send a check uh, in the mail to the church. Uh, you can set up direct deposit with your bank, or you can also continue to give electronically through PushPay, and the instructions of that should be on the screen. We are going to go before the Lord now in prayer, but also want to remind you that our Wednesday night prayer meetings are continuing to happen through Zoom, and uh, that happens at 6.30 to 7.30 on Wednesday nights, and so uh, you can connect that way and connect and pray with and for one another if you're able to do that. Psalm chapter 62, verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So with that in mind, Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father in heaven, you are indeed a refuge for us, and we pour out our hearts before you now, confessing our need and our dependence, but also expressing our adoration. For you are worthy to receive all that we are, Lord, as both our creator and as our redeemer. All life comes from you, and you alone are worthy of our worship. And we pray that you would help us to be a church that is characterized by adoration of you. Bless our worship services, even during this time when we are unable to gather together. Pour out your grace upon us, upon us, nourish us, transform us by meeting with us in your grace and work powerfully by your spirit in our midst, even though we're at different places now. We thank you for all those who have worked so faithfully behind the scenes to put these services together and make them available for viewing. Thank you especially for Andrew Brown and all of his hard work, for Dan Perkins, for Nate Salo. Anthony Romano, Jen Robbins, so many others. We thank you for our tech team, especially this past month, for their faithfulness, um, their service in adapting from week to week, their creativity and their time. And we thank you for the technology itself that allows us to do this during such a challenging time. 
We also thank you for Paul, and we thank you for the worship band who have been so faithful in serving and flexible with schedules. Would you allow our worship services to strengthen us and fuel us to live lives that would be reflected by worship of you throughout the entire week? Uh, We pray also this morning, Lord, for those who have been impacted financially by these sheltering requirements, for those in our community, our state, our nation, and throughout the world. We thank you for those who are laboring to provide food to needy families, including uh, Reach Your Town, who even today is allocating food in our own community. Thank you for Steve and Marianne Stroh and their compassionate hearts. Uh, We pray for the church finances during this time as well. Help us all to continue to give faithfully to the work of the church and to the mission of your kingdom. We pray for our missionaries during this time that you would continue to supply all of their needs as well as bless their work to spread the gospel gospel throughout the world. May this season prove to open up many hearts to the good news. We pray for students and faculty and administrators in our schools today, Lord, who are affected by these measures to slow the spread of the coronavirus. We think especially of seniors who are missing their last season of spring athletics, last opportunities at spring competitions, Uh, missing proms and other major milestones. We pray that you would help them to process these losses and these disappointments with a trust in your goodness and a trust in the wisdom of your providence. We pray also this morning, Lord, for those who are struggling with various health issues, for all of those everywhere who are infected with COVID-19. We thank particularly of Sarah Lowry's uh, parents, Tom and Peg, who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. We thank you that they have not been experiencing breathing problems, and we pray that they would continue to be kept from experiencing breathing problems, but uh, they are feeling quite ill and wiped out, and so we pray that your healing hands would be placed upon them. And Father, this morning we would pray for those struggling with other health problems that are certainly under the radar right now, but every bit as severe. Uh, We thank you that Judy King is home from the hospital and feeling better, and we continue to pray for her husband, Bob, that you would grant him your strength and healing mercies. And we pray the same for their daughter, Sherry, and we pray that she is uh, receiving the care that she needs. We thank you that she has been able to receive some additional care, and we pray that your hands would sustain and hold her near to you during this time. Uh, We lift up to you Carol Morgan and her healing as well, and for endurance for Gene as he cares for her. Uh, We pray for your continued healthy growth and development to be granted to Karen Bow's nephews and nieces' newborn baby, as well as for Pat Barnes's twin grandbabies born last week. Uh, We pray that you'd continue to watch over Brian Stevens, serving our nation in the army during this crisis. With all these things, Lord, we come before you and we praise you that you hold the future. While the future often seems uncertain or tenuous to us, you are working out your plans and your purposes, and we place our trust in you. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for caring for us. But we also want to hear from you. You have the words of life. And so bless Pastor Bob as he brings your word to us now. Open our minds, our ears, and our hearts to hear and believe and to respond in worship and with adoring hearts. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob O'Bannon. I am one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. Thank you to Pastor Brian for his prayer. And if you have a Bible nearby, open that to the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5 is what we'll be looking at. Uh, We are... Uh, going to pick up where we left off in our Route 66 sermon series. What we're doing here at New Life is going through the entire Bible, doing one sermon per Bible book, and we have lately been in the letters of Paul, and kind of a subset of the letters of Paul are what are called the pastoral epistles, and these are letters that Paul has written to leaders of the church, and pastors in particular, to give instruction for how uh, things should proceed and how the church should operate. And one of the recurring themes in these pastoral epistles are these warnings against false teaching. And so on your screen, there should be a list of various passages in all three of these pastoral epistles, which are 1st and 2nd Timothy and the book of Titus, that give warnings about false teaching. And you can see that there's a considerable number of scriptures 
uh, that address this concern, showing that this is uh, of great importance to Paul, presents great concern to him about what might be happening in the church. So throughout these pastoral epistles, warnings against false teaching, that just kind of got me wondering what kinds of false teaching might possibly be uh, gaining a footing in our current time of dealing with this coronavirus pandemic. Well, some of you might have been watching the news and have heard some examples of certain pastors saying certain things like this. There was a pastor down in Tampa, Florida that said that he has cursed the coronavirus in the name of Jesus, uh, apparently thinking that that was somehow going to uh, solve the problem for us. There was another pastor who uh, on television told his people to lay their hands on their television set so that they could be healed of the coronavirus simply through that action. Now, you might recognize this kind of teaching, these kinds of sayings coming from what are called prosperity gospel preachers. And this would include people like uh, Kenneth Copeland, um, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, uh, and a number of others. And the basic essence of prosperity gospel preaching is that God wants all believers to be healthy and wealthy. And that as your faith increases in proportion to that, so should your health and so should your wealth. That's the essence of prosperity gospel preaching. And they are quick to offer up their promises to those who might be fearful of something like the coronavirus. Now, it's not that I think that uh, this is a problem here in our congregation at New Life. It's certainly not something that's taught here, and I, I don't think that there are people in our congregation who um, are drawn to this in any regular way, except that we should acknowledge that among all of us, concern for good health is high in our minds. Uh, these prosperity gospel churches happen to be some of the largest churches, not only in the world, but in our country. Sometimes as many as 30 or 50,000 people will come to these churches. So um, maybe you've kind of wondered, what am I missing with all those people going after this kind of teaching? Certainly this teaching is very easy to find. You can go on the internet and find it all over the place, but you don't even have to go on the internet. You can just turn on your television and you'll see plenty of prosperity gospel teachers. And it's also known that um, the largest segment of the Christian church who is most likely to believe in the prosperity gospel are evangelicals. And many of us here at New Life would identify as evangelicals. And so for those reasons, uh, it's probably worth our time to consider a little bit about what they have to say and what the scriptures would say in response. So, again, we are in this book of 2 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing this letter to a guy named Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in a city called Ephesus, and uh, Paul is giving directions to Timothy about how Timothy should lead and run the church. Uh, this letter written about 66, 67 A.D., you should recognize that as a fairly late date. This book of 2 Timothy, we believe, is the last scriptural letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote this from prison. So this is the very end of his ministry. And themes of 2 Timothy would include the need to persevere, um, particularly through suffering, and as I have mentioned, the presence of false teaching. So that will become apparent to you as I read the text, Paul's concern for false teaching. And so I'm going to read that now, chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 5. <clears throat> All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming 
when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. God, we do ask that by your Spirit you would open our hearts and eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> so I'm going to kind of work our way backward through this text. So we're going to start uh, at the end of the text, and hopefully you'll be able to see from that the flow of Paul's thought. But there are three things that Paul talks to us about here. He gives us a warning, and he gives a command, and then he gives a principle that is the foundation of everything that he is saying here in this passage. So first of all, let's consider the warning. Paul offers a warning. The warning is given to people in the church. Again, this is written to Timothy as a pastor in the church. And so what Paul says to Timothy here in verse 3 is that, Timothy, you should be ready because there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So what he says here is that there will be a time when people are going to reject sound teaching that they are going to have no interest in hearing things like the sinfulness of mankind and um, the wrath of God, the condemnation of God on sin. They're, they're not going to have any interest in hearing about the person of Jesus as the God-man or the Word become flesh. They won't be interested in hearing about the Trinity, about one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet is still one God. They're not going to be interested in hearing about atonement and the need for the shedding of blood and a sacrifice given on the cross and the need for a resurrection from the dead in the person of Jesus Christ. They won't have interest in that kind of sound teaching. They'll think that that's too doctrinal. They'll think those kinds of things are divisive. They'll think those things are boring. They'll think those things are too heady or intellectual, and so they won't have interest, and so they'll reject sound teaching. But then the second part of that is that they will then pursue false teaching. And you see that also in verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, because people will not have patience for sound teaching, they will then turn to find preachers and teachers who are going to say the things that they want to hear. And so that metaphor there of itching ears, it's also translated uh, that people are going to want to have their ears tickled. And so the idea there is that it'll just be something that you know, reaches the, the outsides of their heads. It's an external thing that doesn't penetrate any further. It's just something that sounds good immediately and on the surface, and without any further reflection, people take it, and they believe it. And along with this, then, is this turning away, as Paul goes on in uh, verse 4, turning away from listening to the truth, wandering off into myths, and finding these teachers who are going to say these things that they want to hear. So uh, we all probably have a tendency to do this, right? I mean, all of us tend to uh, gravitate toward people who are saying things that we want to hear. But in this case, Paul is drawing to our attention something very serious. People who are not only looking for things they want to hear, but closing their ears to the things that they should be hearing. Now, how is it that these prosperity gospels might be saying, these prosperity gospel teachers might be saying things that tickle our ears. And there are a number of examples uh, of this, and I'm just going to give a few examples here uh, of the kinds of things that you might hear from prosperity gospel teachers. And here is uh, one thing that they'll say is that you give to get rich. That the reason that you give to the church is so that you can get back from God some blessing. So one person says, give $10, get 1000 Give $1,000, get $10,000. Another prosperity preacher calls this the law of compensation. It's kind of like a financial investment. You give money so that you can get a certain amount back. Now, people hear that, and it tickles their ears. Sounds good. Wow, this is a way that I can get rich. So, sure, I'll give to these ministries. I'll give to these churches. Uh, another example of prosperity gospel teaching is this. 
that faith is a force, that faith is a kind of spiritual energy that can be used to control our environment, to harness the world and get the world to react to our faith in a way that brings advantage to us. Sometimes it's called uh, positive confession. There are certain things that you can say and speak in faith and expect results immediately from that based on the power and strength of your faith. That sounds good too, doesn't it? I mean, that tickles the ears to think that you can actually control your circumstances through something internally to you, through your faith. Uh, the third thing here that we sometimes hear from prosperity gospel teachers is the idea that prayer is a tool, and that is a tool primarily to get from God what you want. And so sometimes this will go by the name of name it, claim it. In prayer, you name the things that you want, and then you have the right to claim it and to assume that God is going to give it to you. One prosperity preacher said, God has no choice but to bring your prayers to pass for your benefit. So prayer becomes a tool that you use to get what you want. Now, that sounds good too, right? That tickles our ears. That's something that sounds good. I've got a lot of things that I'd like to have in my life, bigger house, nicer car. I'll pray for those things, and God will have to give them to me as the teaching goes. And then the fourth thing I'll share with you, and we could talk about others, but the fourth thing that I'll share with you is this idea that there's no suffering required of the Christian, that this is never God's will for the believer, that if there is suffering in your life, that there's something wrong going on in your spiritual life, that what God wants for you is comfort and happiness all the time. So these things tickle our ears. They, they sound good, and it's not surprising why so many people go after this kind of teaching, but the question is this, is it biblical? Are these things truthful? Are these things real as we compare them to the scriptures? There's a guy named Paul Washer who says this. He says, those that sit under false prosperity-driven preaching are not victims they are culprits because they want exactly what the false teacher wants, and it's not God. The passage here in verse 3 says very clearly that people are accumulating for themselves these teachers. They're going to these teachers because the teachers are saying the things that they want to hear. And so the implication is that these people are not going to these teachers to know anything really about the true God, but just going to God to get things from him. And that's the challenge for all of us, whether we follow prosperity preachers or not. A good question for us to ask, have you come to God for who he is? Are you a Christian because you've come to know that God is your creator, that he is the transcendent, holy center of all reality, that he will one day be your judge and that he has sent his son into the world to redeem you, that it is through him and to him and and to him all things that he exists for his glory to be magnified for his name to be exalted that he is transcendent and holy and other is that why you've come to God or have you only come to God for the things that you think he can give to you for the material blessings that you think that he owes you the prosperity gospel is a little bit like marrying somebody for their money and we've heard about this happening. People say they love somebody, but what they really love is what they think they're going to get from their spouse, the money. But the question is, when the money dries up, where is your heart? And when the blessings dry up in the prosperity teaching gospel, where is your heart when it comes to your relationship with God? Remember what Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is taken away, and yet Job says, I will bless his name anyway. So Paul gives this very stern warning. This time is going to come when people will not put up with sound teaching, and they're going to find teachers to tickle their ears with false teaching. But then we go on to the second thing, and there is this command. Paul gives a very clear command to Timothy. 
Now, remember what I said at the beginning of the message, that this is Paul's last letter. So Paul's ministry is coming to an end, but his life is also coming to an end. We, we think he probably died not too long after writing this. He's in prison. Um, he um, is seeking to pass the torch to Timothy. And so these are kind of like Paul's last words of exhortation to Timothy as he gives directions for how Timothy should continue his ministry. And so you see that in verse 1 of chapter 4, there's a, a, a solemnity and a weightiness and a heaviness to this passage. I charge you, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom you know, this heavy language that we stand in the presence of God and this is for the sake of his kingdom and one day we will face him. And so with all that in mind, Timothy, and at the end of my ministry, Timothy, I'm going to give you a charge. Here is the thing of chief importance. Here's what ought to be your primary priority, Timothy. And then he gives that to us in verse 2. Preach. That's what Paul wants Timothy to do. That's what Paul wants pastors to do. That's chief on his heart. Preach. Uh, this reminds me of a passage in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus is described as performing a lot of healings and people are bringing the sick and the demon possessed to him and he's healing and doing these amazing miraculous things and then he goes away into a desolate place and his disciples come to him and they say Jesus all these people are looking for you you know there's other sick people out here and they want to be healed they want to see you and Jesus says something remarkable he says he says no I'm not going to go to these people he says I'm going to go to the next town so that I can preach because that's why I came here, Jesus seems to be putting a priority on preaching even over healing the sick. And the priority on preaching is clear here in 2 Timothy 4. So we might say, preach what? What is Timothy supposed to preach? And the answer is the word. Still in verse 2. Preach the word. The exhortation here is not to preach politics. It's not to preach inspiring stories. It's, it's not to uh, preach 10 steps to financial stability or 10 steps to a happy marriage. No, it's to preach the word, to preach the scriptures, to preach the whole counsel of God, as Paul said in the book of Acts. That's what Timothy is to preach. But when should he do this preaching? When? And the answer to that is always. Staying there in verse 2, preach the word, he goes on, be ready in season and out of season. That is, be ready to preach, engage in this task when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. Do it when it's popular and everybody is listening and do it when it's unpopular and nobody is listening. Do it when preaching gains you praise and commendation and do it when preaching brings persecution, imprisonment, and maybe even death. In season and out of season. I wonder if that's why Paul ends this passage in verse 5 by saying to Timothy, be sober-minded, Timothy. Be realistic about this task. You're going to have to suffer for it. So he says, endure suffering, but do the work of an evangelist. That's kind of another way of preaching the gospel, not to the church, but to the unbeliever. So preach the gospel to the unbeliever and persevere. Fulfill your ministry. Keep preaching no matter what the consequences. Preach always, but then another question would be how? How should Timothy preach? And the answer here is that there is a balance. There's a balance at the end of verse 2. Um, first of all, at the end of that, you notice that he is to preach with complete patience and teaching. So uh, preaching should not be harsh. It shouldn't be an opportunity for the pastor to berate or heap guilt and shame upon his congregation. It should be with patience. Uh, the, the preacher needs to repeat things and 
um, give patience for the people to whom he's preaching to come along and understand what the scriptures are saying. Patience. But the other side to that is also there in verse 2. Because Paul says you should also reprove and rebuke in your preaching and exhort. If you go back up into uh, chapter 3, verse 16, you'll see these same kinds of words being used about what Scripture is useful for. Teaching, reproof, correction, training. Um, There's nothing here about being inspiring or about being funny or about being relevant. (laughs) Reprove, correct, train, rebuke. I mean, if you're sitting under preaching and you never get your toes stepped on, if you never feel challenged, if you're never convicted, then you're not hearing preaching. You're not hearing real biblical preaching. A guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from uh, London in the 20th century, says this, if people um, can listen to us without becoming anxious about themselves or reflecting on themselves, we have not been preaching. Preaching deals with us in a way that we feel that our whole life is involved. And we go out saying, I can never go back and live just as I did before. That's real preaching. When you leave and you think, I've got changes to make. I've got things I've got to do. I cannot be the same person I was before I heard that sermon. It seems to be what Paul has in mind here through these exhortations to reprove, rebuke, and train. So, if the scriptures are preached in this way, as Paul is telling Timothy, then there are certain errors of the prosperity gospel that ought to become pretty apparent to us. So let's return to those four things that I mentioned uh, in the first point. Is it true that we give to get rich? Well, what does Luke 6 say? Jesus says this, love your enemies and do good and lend or, or give expecting nothing in return. Give without expecting that there are any strings attached. Give sacrificially and don't expect that anything's coming back to you. That's the proper heart attitude toward giving. Is faith a force? Well, here's what Paul says in Philippians. He talks about how we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, on the basis of faith. What Paul is talking about here is a faith that is a way for us to receive from God. It's not a way that we achieve anything. There's not power in faith to make things happen. Faith is simply the way we come to God with open hands to receive what he has to give to us. That is his righteousness in Christ, forgiveness of sins, and promise of eternal life. Faith is not a force. Faith can be as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, and can still be effective. How about this question of prayer as a tool where we use prayer to get what we want? Well, James warns against that. He says, you ask, and that is you pray, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're praying simply to get things that satisfy your own desires. There's no other motivation to your prayer. And James is clear that that is not the proper attitude for prayer. And how about this idea that the Christian should never suffer? Well, here's what Peter says. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Not only will you suffer, Christian, but you should rejoice in it. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, it it is true, of course, that that God does make some Christians rich, and he does give wealth to some Christians, and we say, hallelujah, praise God, what a generous God he is. And it's true that God sometimes grants health to his people, and very often does that throughout their whole lives. We say, praise God, what a good and gracious and generous God he is, and there are times when we get sick, And we pray to God for healing. There are times when he heals miraculously. That's true. And more often than that, there are times when God uses medicine and doctors and nurses to bring us back 
to health. And so in all those cases, we say praise God, we give him the glory and the thanks for his goodness and generosity. But friends, we can't forget that life in a fallen world is hard and you don't always get what you want. I mean, the Rolling Stones knew that. You can't always get what you want, but the prosperity preachers don't seem to realize that. You can't expect in this life to get what you want all the time because this life is not about you, it's about the glory of God first and foremost. A guy named Ross Douthat says this, in the prosperity gospel's emphasis on the virtues of prosperity, it risks losing something essential to Christianity. Skipping on to Easter, you might say, without lingering at the foot of the cross. It would seem that the cross of Jesus provides a problem for prosperity gospel teachers. Because here, our Savior had to go to a cross for our salvation. He had to suffer. He lived in poverty. He suffered alone. And that was the only way that you and I could be forgiven for our sins and to be made right with God. And on top of that, Jesus then gives us the command and he says, you Christian, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your poverty. Take up your illness. Take up your disappointment. Take up your loneliness. Whatever your cross is, and follow me. And so that's the command of Paul here to Timothy, that this is the kind of thing that he should preach. And this preaching is built on a principle, and that brings us to our third point. There's a principle here. So a warning, people are going to want to hear, preachers who they like to hear, they're going to want their ears tickled, but here's how we kind of combat that through the command of preaching. But what is it that we should preach, or how, to what source do we look to be able to help us understand the difference between what is true and false? What, what do we use to help us identify false teaching? And the answer to that is Scripture. The final authority and standard for life and practice and doctrine for the Christian is Scripture. And that's what Paul tells us here in verses 16 and 17 at the end of chapter 3. And we get this kind of robust kind of doctrine of Scripture, probably the most important passage in all the Bible for our doctrine of Scripture. You might ask in response to this, well, what parts of Scripture um, will help us identify false teaching? At the very beginning of verse 16, we get the answer. All. All Scripture. Not, not just the New Testament. Not just the red letters that you might see in your Gospels, in your version of the Bible, but all of Scripture. Not just the parts you agree with, not just the parts you understand, not just the parts you find comforting, and not just the parts that might promise blessing, prosperity, health, and wealth. We don't get the luxury of picking and choosing what parts of Scripture we want to obey and what parts we want to dismiss and put aside. To obey Scripture is to obey God. To disobey any portion of Scripture is to disobey God because all of Scripture comes from God. And so you see that throughout the rest of verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, you, you might ask this question in, in response to what I'm saying here about all of Scripture um, being authoritative for us because a very common response to that is how can that possibly be true because the Bible is written by, by men, by sinful men, by men who lived thousands of years ago in a different culture, by men who had certain agendas in mind. Certainly, Scripture is filled with all sorts of errors and things that we don't really have to listen to and we can just put aside. Well, the answer to that is this principle that I want to talk about here for a moment. It's called the principle of inspiration. What this passage is teaching us is that Scripture is inspired. You see that in verse 16. Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this is not saying that Scripture is inspiring, although, of course, sometimes it is. But we're not saying Scripture is like a, a great song or a beautiful poem, and we just happen to be inspired by it. No, Scripture itself is inspired. It's not even saying the writers of Scripture are inspired, although they were when they wrote Scripture, but what the passage is saying is that it's Scripture itself 
that is inspired by God. So that when we read scripture and hear the words of scripture, we hear the actual words of God. John Frame defines inspiration like this. It's a divine act that creates an identity between a divine word and a human word. See, God is able to do that. He can take a human word and make it say what he wants to say so that the human word and the divine word are united in saying exactly what God wants. The fact that the scriptures are written by human beings is not an obstacle to the accuracy or reliability of the Bible. In fact, it turns out to be a benefit because this is the means by which God can then communicate to us in a very personal, practical, and down-to-earth way as he uses real people in their real cultures with their real personalities and makes his word um, identical to their word. So what we hear through these human writers is exactly what God wants us to hear. So this is what Paul is teaching Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, this should be the foundation of your ministry. This is your tool. Like at the end of verse 17 when he says that This is true so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I think that applies to Christians, but in context, this is applying to Timothy as the pastor. And he's saying, Timothy, as a leader of the church, this is what you need to use in your ministry. The scriptures. This is your tool, your primary tool. Because through the scriptures we hear the words of God. Now one thing we don't want to miss is this. It's very important And a lot of people misunderstand this when they look to the scriptures because they think of the scriptures primarily as just a self-help manual to tell them how to live a happy life. But the ultimate value of scripture is found in the fact that it points us to Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation, our only hope for forgiveness before God. And if we can back up one more verse, look what he says in verse 15. Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, Timothy... From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's a reference to scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the main point of scripture. That's the main purpose of scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know, but scripture does tell us the most important things that we need to know. And in this case, primarily, it's that the only way to be saved is placing faith in Jesus Christ. DeYoung sums it up well. The purpose of the scriptures is not ultimately to make you smart or make you relevant or make you rich or get you a job or get you married or take all your problems away or tell you where to live. The aim is that you might be wise enough to put your faith in Christ and be saved. Will you do that today if you haven't already? You've heard the scriptures They're coming to you with that purpose in mind, that you would turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and be saved. Well, one of the helps or inspirations for me as I was thinking through this message was a a DVD that I watched this past week. It's called American Gospel, and I would highly recommend this to you. I I think you have to order it online. It's about $15.00. But um, very, very good um, DVD that talks about the basics of the gospel, in particular in contrast to the prosperity gospel. And in the the DVD, they focus on a guy named Nabil Qureshi, who used to be a Muslim, but he came to faith in Christ, and he wrote a number of books, and he traveled around as a, a Christian apologist, particularly showing the difference between Christianity and Islam. And um, in 2017, he came down with stomach cancer. And in the DVD, they show a video. Nabil was making these videos regularly, kind of giving updates on his health condition. And there's a video of him (coughs) in his hospital bed. And you can tell he's not doing well. And he offers up a prayer in in the hospital bed. And he he says, Lord, please heal me. Please come through. But if you don't, I trust you, and I love you anyway. And it wasn't too long after that that he passed away, and Nabil is in the presence of Jesus right now. But friends, I want to leave you with this thought, that 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 story that I just told you, that reality that happened in Nabil's life is the real miracle 
That is an example of real faith, not necessarily health and wealth, but it's when the Christian who is not healed, when the Christian who is not married, when the Christian who is jobless, when the Christian who doesn't have children or grandchildren, when the Christian whose life is filled with disappointment nonetheless says to God, I trust you and I love you anyway. That's the test of true faith. That's a true miracle of the gospel and of God's spirit. May God give us the grace to say, always, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have warned us in your word about the prevalence of false teaching. We thank you that you've given us the scriptures by which we can tell the difference. We thank you that your word goes forth through preaching to instruct us and reprove us and train us. And we thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens and what befalls us, that you are good, you are great, you are mighty, and always worthy of our trust. And we thank you, Lord, that the day is coming when you will wipe away all of our tears and you will heal all of our diseases when you resurrect our bodies out of the grave. Lord, we long for that day and pray Jesus come quickly. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you, singers. Receive now the benediction. 
And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion now and forevermore. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.